0: Welcome to episode 262 of the Reformed
1: Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother.
0: Hey, brother. Is it safe to say that this episode is going to be three times as good as
1: the average episode? Oh, man. Man, I don't even know how to come back from that. I don't even know. So So
0: many horrible theological puns in so
1: little time. So as Jesse is alluding to, we are shifting out of our theology proper uh, portion of this ongoing series and kind of basics of Christian theology uh, and we're shifting into subdivision of theology proper, which is talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. So today we're going to talk about some of the biblical uh, passages that lead us to the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, talk about how we kind of need to read those, etc. cetera. But before we do that, let's jump into some affirmations and denials. So Jesse, what do you got? Oh man, I'm going
0: to call an audible. I had like two affirmations lined up and oh, I'm just man. going with my gut on this one. This one might be a little bit weird. People okay. might be like, why are you affirming this? But I'm just going to lean right into it or fall right into it. So, you know, we have these different genus and species of affirmations and denials that we have basically constructed for no good reason, but right. because we like to have categories over time. And I guess this one is its website. Is that one of them? I know, I know we um, have like technology and application, Yeah. but here's a little website that might be useful to some people. And when I bring it up, it's the, I think some people are going to be like, why do you, are you using that? Because it sounds a little sketch. So Here's here's the comparison. Probably not many people for good reason have this in their lives, but maybe at some point you've needed a burner phone. I don't know. You robbed a bank. I have no (laughs) idea, but you you wanted a burner phone and it's not your real phone. And obviously not a number that you really actually want to keep. And hopefully you're not using it for nefarious purposes, but you had this thing on the side for some communicative purpose that you didn't want to infiltrate kind of like your normal means of communication. So this affirmation is for 10minutemail.com. So the number 10minutemail.com. This is a website that will give you a temporary email address for 10 minutes. And it's great if you're trying to do fill out a form or sign up for something and you literally just need an email address for a short period of time because you're worried that somebody's going to hassle you. So this is like the burner phone equivalent for email. It starts nice. with 10 minutes. You can actually advance the time if you need it for a little bit longer because you're setting something up, you need to receive the response. But this is like a really clever way to actually, I guess, protect your privacy a little bit and not disclose your email address. If you know you're signing up for something that you, you know, don't really care about or don't want your email address out there, uh, incidentally, don't use this for our contest, for the book true. giveaway contest. Do not use 10minutemail.com because you're going to want
1: to get that book and we're going to need it's to email true. you to make that happen. It's true. Uh, this is not the same one we've used before, but this concept has come up on the podcast before. I don't remember what the other it one was, one but we've, we've affirmed something similar in the past. It is not 10minutemail.com because I've never heard of this before. That's pretty cool. It's a good idea.
0: Yeah, I know. Again, there's a lot on the Internet in the interwebs that is sketchy. We need to redeem all these things. I think there's probably a good use for this. And like I said, I've used it in the past just for signing up for some something or have you ever, have you ever done something like you're, you're in the process and you're like, why do you need my email address? And I'm worried that you're, you're, you you're say you're not going to sell it or you're not going to hassle me. I'm pretty sure you're going to sell yeah. it and you're going to hassle me. Yeah. So like, I don't know if there's actually any laws or any good accountability for anything that says we do not sell this stuff or we like, how would you prove that? Yeah, there's no, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult. So yeah. this is a nice way to protect yourself. Uh, please loved ones don't do weird things with this. Yeah.
1: I could I'm, see this I'm being <laughs> really useful for like, uh, like if you're looking up an article that has a paywall, but yeah, they're, exactly. they're going to give you like, they're going to give you three free articles, but you have to sign up for an account first. So like right. you're not really stealing because you're you're getting your your free article, but you don't really want them to like hound you for the next seventy years asking you to sign up. Hey, we saw you right. read an article once in 2021, and it's 2097 now. So please register. Like <laughs> I could see that being useful for that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So again, with great power, something, all that normal something,
1: stuff. Something.
0: Something. Yeah. Insert all accountability cliches there. Yes. So all right, no, enough about short expiring, exploding,
1: self-destructing email addresses, what are you affirming? So I, this is not going to surprise anyone, I'm affirming the COVID boosters. So I uh, work in a healthcare uh, facility setting and our institution opened up the COVID booster program for Pfizer injections uh, to all employees of the hospital who received Pfizer the first time around. And I went and got my booster yesterday and uh, it knocked me on my butt for a little while. Uh, I was in pretty rough shape this morning, but I'm. it, it seems like the, the level of reaction you got on your second booster is about the same as what you get on this one. But at least in my experience, it seems like it hits you sooner and then it's resolved a little bit faster. Last time I was I was laid out for about two days this time. It seems like it's going to be about a day and a half before I'm back to 100%. But, you know, this is one of those things where I know that the the church has some strong opposing opinions within the church about the boosters, but I'm just really thankful. This is just such a, a common grace thing that these little viruses that can kill us, wherever this, one, this particular one may have come from, these viruses exist that, that could kill us. It seems like it's pretty obviously a result of the fall. And God, in his grace, has seen fit to give us the ability to to create these different kinds of chemicals and different kinds of technologies that allow us to protect ourselves. So... I got it. I think everybody who uh, who exists should get their vaccination uh, if you're medically able to. Uh, I understand there are some ethical questions that some people have, and that's a, a conversation worth having a different time. But I, I'm i excited that I got my booster. And now in about 14 days, I'll be back up to about 90, 91% uh, protection from severe disease. So And that's exciting because it means I don't have to worry as much about uh, my daily life, which is nice. So I'm affirming the COVID yeah. boosters. I like the
0: way you said that. I think that's a really helpful framing that this technology, uh, even the development of medicine, even I would say the way in which we might not be happy or pleased, let's say with how medicine is developed, and yet God is still using what has developed right. to give us this kind of sense of common grace of protection. Uh, like, that's an amazing thing. I think it's easy to discount this stuff and we get caught up as all, in all the things that you and I've talked about before, where it's politicking yeah. or poll mix about this. And just forget that God is still sovereign over all these things, that he controls them and he's moving them in such a way that there's still something glorious about them, that he's even redeeming them in such a way to use them to show his grace toward all people. So I like that the way, this should be our new phrase now, you just coined something. I'm not sure if you you heard it, but it was beautiful. And that was, I think you said, this is like a recommendation for all people who exist. I just like that.
1: Yeah, if people who exist, do not a exist. Person. If you do not exist, you should not get a visa, uh, a vaccination. But if you do exist, in fact, then you should get a. Uh and I get it. Like some people can't, some people medically can't do it. Some people have for allergies sure. or other reasons, but I think for the most part, you know, I just think it's a good idea. I think it's the technology, the the, the scientific background of it is solid. Uh, we've now got, you know, millions of people who've received the vaccination and not a 0% reaction. Every medication carries risks. Uh, every medical procedure carries risks and, and this is no different, but a relatively small, uh, amount of possible, uh, reactions that have been significant have happened, but, um, yeah. I just think it's a good idea. So if, if you're in a situation where you are qualified to go get it, which most people that are listening to this probably are not yet uh, right now, it's hard to keep track of who's avail- who it's available for at what times. Right now, it's mostly people over 65, people who have right. underlying health conditions or people who have a job that puts them at some sort of increased risk, which I didn't realize this, but people like uh, grocery store workers or uh, other kinds of public service positions where you're interacting with public a lot that actually qualifies you. You don't have to work in a hospital or a school. So uh, go check it out. You know, go to the CDC's website. They have all the information about who qualifies and who doesn't. And uh, and as always, even though we are a top fifty healthcare podcast. Please right. talk to your doctor before you take any sort of thing that we say as medical advice. But in general, the scientific consensus and all of the doctors that I know and talk to, which is quite a few, actually, they're all saying, just go get this thing. It's it's safe and it's effective. But
0: when you go to your doctor, say we sent you.
1: Yeah, definitely tell them that Jesse and Tony sent you. That's all you <laughs> should tell them. Don't say anything else. Say, I've got They'll a referral know. for this service and it's it's from Tony and Jesse.
0: They'll know. It'll be absolutely clear. Before we move on from this, because I'm actually really glad that you affirmed this. Can I just say publicly, because I'm not sure if I have done this. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually, because I have several friends, several loved ones, several brothers and sisters who are actually on the front lines of healing people who are coming into contact with COVID. And I just want to say thank you. I'm not sure that as a church, we've done a really good job at, even in the midst of all this craziness, really supporting and loving a little bit on those who are in our midst of brothers and sisters that get up every day and they put themselves in harm's way on this. And for them, it's become not just a season, but a way of life. It's yep. never stopped. So, so they've been serving and they're exhausted and they're tired. And I just want to say thank you, because that is a great ministry. And I think it's a little bit been the kind of thing that it's just gotten lost in the shuffle. So for all our loved ones, our brothers and sisters who are out there doing their thing, healing people, serving people
1: in the midst of COVID in particular, thanks so much for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I work in a hospital, but I wouldn't necessarily think of myself as a quote unquote healthcare frontline worker. But um, I know a lot of people who are, and you know what? You're exactly right. Like there's, There never was a point for people who work in healthcare where things shut down. So right. those of us who have had jobs in hospitals or other medical systems, um, you know, we we had to go back to work on you know April first, twenty twenty. Like we didn't we didn't get to like take the day off and decompress about it. And there are actually a lot of studies that are starting to come out that are showing things that are that look a lot like post traumatic stress disorder for yes. medical workers, right. people, especially in those early days of the pandemic. I mean, I've said it before. There was a point where. We all kind of thought that you were you were going to get COVID from someone like walking past you on the street who had it and like coughed at the wrong time, and we know now like it's not really like that. Although the Delta variant is pretty scary, but it it's not really like that. Like you, you know some some kind of common sense precautions and a little bit of extra vigilance and you can keep yourself pretty safe. And obviously like the vaccination makes a big difference. But for those of us who who were going into the hospital, I didn't start working from home uh, probably until the end of April of 2020. So for that whole first Uh, The first case in our medical system that showed up was on February 28th. So for that whole month of March and most of April, I was going into the office every day. And although it was a ghost town because some people got sent home right away to work from home or some people got furloughed for a little while, um, it was scary. It was really scary. And so I, I feel like I'm okay, but I know a lot of people who are exhibiting some of those same kinds of like PTSD type symptoms of you know, kind of like nightmares and sometimes panic attacks right. and things like that. So if you know someone who, this sounds like it's like a big public service announcement, it's not really what we were trying <laughs> to go for, but if you know someone who's in the healthcare field and is has been working, uh, particularly people who work in more high acuity kinds of clinics or, you know, like clinics that are related to COVID pulmonary clinics, uh, emergency departments, primary care offices, just check on them. Just tell them that you're, you're concerned about them and that you want to make sure they're okay and ask if you can do something to help. Cause a lot of times, especially with, with medical professionals, there is sort of a stoicism that's built into it where you don't want to talk about your weaknesses with other people because you kind of don't want to like give a, a persona of, fear or like you don't want to communicate that to people who are already afraid of things like the virus or other kinds of medical situations so you try to keep that to yourself and it's been really difficult for a lot of people I know a lot of people that have really really struggled I know people who have chosen to right. leave their their long right like long career 20 plus year career in the medical fields have chosen to leave that because they just they just can't go back into a, a hospital after this they just can't do it so check on them pray for them see if there's things you can do to help and say thank you um, because I think that's the other thing Thing is you're right. I think this is a lot like um, a lot like the military in some ways, where yes, um, sure. you know we can have debates about the government and whether or not certain military actions are justified. But at the end of the day, like the soldiers on the ground, don't really have anything to do with that but they're the ones that typically it gets taken out on. And this has kind of been the same thing. Like we can debate all day long and and there are worthy debates to have. I don't want to say that there aren't, but we can debate all day long about medical science and about COVID vaccinations and whether this is some sort of power grab by the the government. We can have those discussions, but for the most part, like the the nurse that that takes your vitals before you see the doctor or the person who scheduled you, when you called in, they have nothing to do with that. They may actually agree with you that this is all some big government conspiracy. I know people in the hospital that I work at that have that same kind of perspective that think this is overblown and that it's been a big power grab. That doesn't mean that they're not still going to go to go to work every day and do their job. So try not to take it out on them. I understand it's hard to not be frustrated and some for some people not to be scared of what's going on. Uh, But just say thank you. Just show gratitude. Just be just like be a Christian, like like show love and kindness (laughs) and charity and generosity and gratitude to everyone, but especially to the people who are struggling and serving through this. Right on. So you just
0: unwittingly built a bridge right oh, over into my denial. I mean, it's so good. We did, we don't plan this, loved ones. You should know. There, in fact, in this particular episode, there was like the minimal amount of precursor <laughs> conversation yeah. before we hit the record button. It's true. So uh, that that is like a beautiful intro to me. Let me say before I, I just rock this denial, which I'm going to try to keep quick because I don't want it to be the all COVID uh, podcast. But you know where it's going. The, I have this idea for a segment where I get the booster during like a live recording. Can we do that? Like somehow it's going to be really horrible podcasting, but I can do a play by play and then you can hear me scream like a little British school girl. No offense to the British school girls that might listen to us <laughs> when some, I get the shot. Some little
1: British school girl that listens to our podcast is like, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I don't scream like that. So here's the denial and I'll, it's a, uh, like
0: a, My goodness, we have had so many COVID-related denials, we should have written a book and cataloged them all. But here's one that's slightly nuanced. The denial is missing the point again when it comes to what it means to love one another in COVID. I just want to deny this this idea that somehow there's this sense of, uh, like, in the church, so I'm talking about our churches, I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, having this sense that our privacy or our right to be expressive in secretive ways somehow triumphs over what it means to be gracious and loving. And so I would say there's nothing wrong with any congregation or the elders of a congregation or a pastor of a congregation coming together and say, loved ones, would you, for the sake of love, be willing to wear masks? That's all I'm saying. Like, yeah. I think that we get too caught up in the like, we don't want to ostracize one group or the other. We don't want to expose people. We don't, I'm just saying, and I'm saying this in part because the, the employer that I work for has actually levied, they said, listen, we can't mandate the mask. We're not going to mandate the mask. And for an actual employer to make a stance on this right now is particularly troublesome because there's all these legal ramifications that are right. not ambiguous and not well-defined. So the, the, my employer actually said, listen, we're not going to mandate it. What we're asking instead is that when you come together and you're working with people, you are a de facto family and families look out for one another and they're willing to sacrifice for one another. So would you please wear the mask? I am a little bit ashamed if that standpoint can be taken in the quote unquote, like secular arena in space, just to express like, and we might talk about like, maybe there's different motives, like health care costs, stuff like that. Listen, I get all that stuff. What they're still employing in this case is this idea of love and respect toward one yeah. another and particularly respecting and trying to create boundaries around vulnerable people. And I am a little bit like, man, if, if you're, if we're part of churches that can't do that, I feel a little bit ashamed about that. Not every yeah. church is like that. Not every church is like this, but I'm saying like, I think we need to, again, continue to evaluate what it means to love one another, to protect one another, to serve one another. And if that means for a period of time that is either short or long, that we have to take extra precautions to care for one another, I don't want anybody to, nobody should ever, this is a denial basically, nobody should ever feel like they can't ask that in good faith Yeah, and hopefully have Christians respond in good faith and not respond with political arguments, with arguments of attitude, with arguments of selfishness. So that that's just like a, that's kind of like a really ephemeral denial, but y- you get where I'm at, right?
1: Yeah. And, and you know what, like it shouldn't even have to be said. I mean, it, it's frustrating that we even have to like talk about this because yes, I get it. There's, there's a divi- a divergence of opinions on masks. Some people, for some reason are convinced that they don't do anything. Other people are convinced that they actually are harmful Somehow those same people will tell me that there's never been a mask st- study on the efficacy of masks, even though they just told me two things about the efficacy of math as though it was like scientific certainty. But the reality is <laughs> the medical community has been using masks to prevent viral diseases right. for like 150 years. So like nobody ever looks at their surgeon, when a surgeon when they go into the operating room and is like, oh, you're wearing a mask. You must just be a chump. Nobody says that because they recognize, like, the mask serves a purpose. It's been tested. There's a reason for it. And I think, you know, like I said, there's a lot of varying opinions. Some of them are, are based on biblical convictions that I think are bad applications of biblical convictions. But I understand the arguments that are being made. But at the end of the day, it costs you nothing to wear a mask, you, you know, for an hour on a Sunday morning. It costs you nothing. There, there's no, no study that I'm aware of that shows that there's a decrease in the amount of oxygen you're getting. There's no study that I'm aware of that shows any sort of medical condition that would be exacerbated by a mask. They're uncomfortable. It feels like you can't breathe. I get it. I, I wear a mask almost all day, every day. So if anyone gets right. it, I get it. But we really should be able to out of love for one another not even not even counting whether or not the masks actually do anything let's just for the sake of argument say they do nothing they're 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 absolutely ineffective they do nothing whatsoever there's no reason why if someone says to me i would really feel more comfortable if you wore a mask that i can't say you know what just for the sake of being charitable and generous to my brother or sister in christ or even just charitable and generous to my brother or sister in the human race I'll put that on for a period of time while you're, you know, while you're, uh, while we're interacting, it doesn't, doesn't mean I have to wear it all the time. It doesn't mean I have to like it. It doesn't mean I have to think anything particular about it. It's just a small thing we can do to sort of show that we're not so centered on our own rights and our own privilege, our own, um, self-centered interests that we're willing to take it, this, make this very small minor sacrifice for the comfort of someone else. I, I just, I just don't understand. I've never understood that perspective. It's tough.
0: I mean, I, I, we, and I mean, you know, Tony, we, we get more than anything. Well, it's actually this in Game of Thrones. We get a lot of email on. People have strong opinions about this, and I respect those opinions. We, want, we need to hear one another. Right. Where I'm coming from is, we want to be blessings to our leaders. We want to allow them to lead us, and they have an elevated level of care and responsibility for those in their right. flock. So, in some way, I bring this denial home right to rest on me, and that is like it should be a shame on us if our pastors or our leaders or elders can't ask us to do certain things because they're afraid that they're going to have a disproportionate or over-indexed response. Like, for instance, this is not my case, but I know some churches where pastors are afraid to step into this lane because they're worried it's going to split the church in half. Yeah,
1: there's churches that have been split in half because of it.
0: That's so unfortunate. Like, where where is our witness loved ones in this? Like, this is is even totally different than the vaccine discussions, like the, the sides of that. This is just trying to show love and support for those around us. Not to mention that I think you could also, in in almost a tangential way, like in this, I don't want to derail us, but you could make the argument that like, this is even a lesser brother argument. Like if there are those that say like, listen, the mask is important because we know it's, it's literally stopping. uh, Here's what we know at the very least. It literally stops like particles from popping out of your mouth into the air. Like it's catching, I'm spitting all over this microphone right now. So if I were wearing a mask, by the way, we're not in the same room. So I have to buy, like, we have to buy a Jesse
1: mask? a new microphone like every 15 <laughs> days because he just slobber into the microphone. It's, it's just, I can see it on the Zoom chat.
0: You can probably hear it, everybody. So kidding. like we know that that stuff would be caught by a mask. So all that to say, it just seems to me that... There are actually very few in many ways, like demonstrative ways in which we can show love to one another. Because I've said before, love, apart from your willingness to be inconvenienced, is not genuine. Right? Christ challenges this us with this all the time. All, so much of his ministry is essentially emphasizing that fact. And so here we have, like you said, the smallest inconvenience. But now it's more than that. We've talked about that at Now it's kind of like spilling over into this, like, it's almost like the attitudes are just so... Ripe for conflict. Yeah. That it's like we can't have in the our Christian communities in our families, like just decent discussion about this without feeling like, well, everybody's going to get offended if we if we bring this up. Like, shame on us. Like as Christians, yeah. we should just be willing to do whatever it takes to love uh, one another. I, I, I don't know. I just feel like
1: we should be better. We should be the best at that. Yep. And yeah. And yeah, you're totally right. I don't know. I uh, I desperately want to make a disclaimer uh, to like avoid offending people but I'm just not going to do it. If you're offended by the fact that we think you should wear a tiny piece of cloth over your mouth and that the, the, uh, the, the almost negligible inconvenience that that is, is worth, uh, worth that cost to show love, uh, to someone else. Then I just, I don't even care if you're offended at this point. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't bother me. Yeah. And in terms of like ranking, listen,
0: everyone, you know, you know this about us top 50 healthcare podcast. So like, We've got. They don't just give those awards out to anybody. We gotta be it's doing. True. We gotta be doing something. That's true.
1: <laughs> Jesse, are you ready for the shortest denial in Reform Brotherhood history?
0: I'm ready for it, and I will be shocked if it comes from you.
1: Okay, I'm denying. Is that fair? Yeah, I'm denying skunks. <laughs> okay. So we have this big fat skunk that lives under the deck, you you know this, I'm not going to put pictures up because I don't have permission to put pictures of my neighbor's house out, but the, you know, this big giant deck yeah. that my neighbor's house yeah. has, there's a, it's a, it's a large building. There's a big wraparound deck goes around the whole building and it has become a little condominium for this big fat, annoying skunk that it just is the, the chillest thing ever. Like it does. It's not scared of us. It's not scared of the dog, but our dog goes crazy. So there are lots of times that I go out there and the dog won't go to sleep for the rest of the night because she's just all jacked up on skunk adrenaline and can't deal skunks with it. We'll do that. Yeah. So I'm just denying skunks. That's it. That's it. That's no, all. That's there great. Is. Here's the thing.
0: I don't know how many people have had run-ins with skunks. They don't care. Mm -mm. They just don't care. Like they will sashay wherever they want to. I've run into some several on our property actually. And I I don't know, I want to suspect of course, but I'm imputing motives that they know that they're like, listen, I can stick it all up. So like, if you want to come at me, come at me, bro. But it, it that's probably not what they're thinking, but they do seem to be like super chill animals and they'll just go like, in other words, if you come across a skunk, there have been a couple of times where I've been like, leave. Like there was one time, it was one right in front of my door when I came back from church, actually late in the evening. And it just uh, actually literally sat there for a while. And I was like, I'm I'm holding a guitar in my backpack and I just had to wait. Because of course you don't want to confront that right. because that could go horribly wrong. Well, yeah. And yet the skunk saw me and he was basically like, care. yeah, I
1: see you. They do not care. No, I. I they don't have right any, there. I mean, they don't have any natural predators really. So, right. I mean, even the things that would hunt them know better. And so they get left alone. And especially in our like a residential area like this. Yeah, like we have foxes around. There's a bear that lives back in the woods somewhere. But for the most part, like these things are not being preyed upon. So this skunk has got it all set up. He, he just wanders around the yard, finds mushrooms to eat all day long. He just doesn't care. Like I can go up and like clap at him and he just looks at me. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's He leaves when he
1: wants to leave. <laughs> So it, it's annoying. I'm, I'm not nervous about it. I, if I keep my distance, he's going to keep his distance. Like, we've got an agreement. But it just the dog freaks out. So, yeah, I'm so just denying They're actually super smart that. is what the, the sort of scary yes. thing. They actually might be thinking, like, that That dude's not going to bother me. I think so. He's like, I could, I could take that guy. I'll just spray him. And then what, what's he going to do? He's going to smell. That's all that's going to happen.
0: Yeah, I, I think so, actually. Like, Pepe Le Pew is, like, right on. That was probably a, yeah. inappropriate and accurate. Well, aside from... Uh, I mean, that happened to be a French skunk,
1: apparently. I'm yeah,
0: not yeah. saying that all skunks are French, yeah. but in this case, he was. A quick update, In speaking of kind of the natural world and pests or things that complicate the natural world, uh, I've gotten some feedback on this whole spotted lanternfly thing. Oh, So, yeah, I mean, apparently it is a thing. It is happening in other parts of the world and other parts of the U.S. Incidentally, I was at a road race, a running race, yesterday with my wife, socially distanced. And this was like a costume you could dress up if you wanted to. There was a group of women who dressed up as spotted lantern flies and they had these like really creative, wonderful costumes. They had like these giant wings that they had made made of fabric that had the spots on them. You could tell immediately what they were. And on the back they had little signs that said, Please squish me. And I was like, nice. that's fantastic.
1: That's great. Did that was there a group of uh people dressed up like trees that they just destroyed? <laughs> they pushed him down and stepped all over him. So. That,
0: that would be, that would be, be like even, a marathon uh, skit. Even more hilarious. I will say to bring this like in a full circle or into the family and to also at the same time advertise the society of reform podcast, which is this wonderful family of podcasts. You can go to reformpodcasts.com and see all the cousins, brothers and sisters that are part of this. Go check out the mega feed, listen to them. One of the people who is at this thing was, the other host of Fast God Stuff, Conrad, who is dressed as Count Chocula. Nice. That seems
1: That's like something. That's an amazing cereal. That seems like something Conrad would do. Yeah. And it's amazing cereal. Do you yeah. Like oh, it, like it is. Count you Chocula? can only get it certain times a year. There's like. Yes. There's like Frankenberry and there's like a, a ghost one and you can only get it in October. Yeah. You know your cereals. I do. I don't eat them much, but I know them.
0: Yeah. You pro- we probably shouldn't eat them, but they're
1: delicious. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. It's definitely bad for you. It's terrible for yeah. you.
0: Yeah. Speaking of like delicious and delicious theology, I think
1: the Trinity <laughs> of God is about as tasty as it gets. Would you agree? I would agree. So we are going to, um, like I said earlier, we're going to transition out of sort of like talking about God in the abstract, which is really what theology proper is. You're kind of talking about the fundamentals of the nature of God without respect, specific respect to any one person of the Trinity. So you're, you're talking about kind of hypothetical attributes that are concrete and actual in each person of the Trinity in the single shared nature, which we'll get into some of that those details as we go through Trinity over this episode and probably a couple more after this. But one of the things that often gets missed, and I'm just as guilty of this in my discussions of the Trinity, is a lot of times because the Trinity is such a, um, it's such a foundational bedrock doctrine in the Christian faith, such that if you don't have the Trinity, you're not actually talking about a Christian theology at all. Right. A lot of times people sort of just like skip over explaining what the Bible says about it. It's kind of like assumed that the Bible teaches this. And so you go straight through. Uh, straight past that into into articulating what the doctrine is without discussing you know how did we get there what's what is the biblical data that we're using to do that so we're going to take a little bit of time today we're going to go through passages I don't have any specific passages prepared Jesse didn't know <laughs> what we were talking about until about five minutes before the episode so we're going to start off in John one because that's just an easy one to come up with at the top of uh, top of my mind and then we're just going to go through the passages that come to mind to start but before we do that I do want to kind of lay the groundwork for for the the way we have to think about the trinity and the bible. So, a lot of times what people think, and I've heard this from academic theologians, it's not like this is a terrible view to have, I just don't think it's the right one, is they'll they'll say something like, well, there's some like hints about the Trinity in the Old Testament, but you really can't get the Trinity from the Old Testament. Really, the doctrine of the Trinity is developed in the New Testament, and neither of those things is true. So neither is it true that the doctrine of the Trinity is only hinted at in the Old Testament. I think there are some very specific explicit passages in the Old Testament that you can look to that you cannot properly explain without appealing to something like the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? And also, the New Testament was written after the doctrine of the Trinity had already been developed by the Church. So all right. of the documents in the New Testament are already Trinitarian doctrines. So it, it, you know, we, we think about the development of doctrine— Yes, doctrine develops. Even across the scriptures, the scriptures are written over the course of, you know, multiple thousands of years in the case of the Old Testament and over, you know, about a, about 60 years in the New Testament. There is de- development. If you, if you line those up in chronological order, you do see development. But the doctrine of the Trinity does not really function like that in the New Testament. Where the New Testament is talking about the doctrine of the Trinity or passages that— Uh, That are applicable to the doctrine of the Trinity, it's strikingly uniform across the board. There's not like a spot where it's sort of as like an, an undeveloped form of the Trinity. And then, you know, like, well, this epistle was written a little bit later, and it looks like the church has come to it a little bit more. The doctrine of the Trinity is a result of the church's reflection on the reality of the Christ event. And I I say the Christ event, don't think I'm some sort of weird liberal. I'm just talking about the complex of events from the birth of Christ to the ascension of Christ. And and I would probably throw Pentecost in there as well as part of this whole mix, is the church was confronted with these events. They recognize, in most cases, early Jewish sources recognize that there's this sort of plurality within the singularity of God that that they didn't fully understand and that they didn't articulate always in the exact same way, but they recognize this. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. It's clear he's God. And then the Holy Spirit comes. It's clear that, that he's God. And so Boom. the church before the writing of the New Testament documents, had to grapple with and figure out what these doctrines are. And so as they wrote the New Testament documents, this was already in the background of their thinking that this was the doctrine that the church had received and had accepted. So we have to understand that, because if we don't, then sometimes we get the Trinity a little bit wrong, because we don't read the passages in the New Testament as though they are a fully formed Trinitarian theology. That's not to say there isn't doctrinal clarification and doctrinal articulation that happens after the New Testament, but the basic form of the doctrine of the Trinity was already established, and we see it in sources. And we'll talk about the historical stuff in another episode, but we see it in sources as early as like 150 AD. So right. within within like 60 years or 70 years of the writing of the of the close of the New Testament, we already have all the basic language for the doctrine of the Trinity present and people like Tertullian and other Justin Martyrs. So we'll talk about some of those historical sources on a different episode, but if we don't get that right, if we come to this like the New Testament is developing a doctrine rather than is already right. articulating an established doctrine, we can get a little bit sideways on some of this stuff because then we read a, a passage as though it's not a fully formed doctrine of the trinity when in reality it is and what we need to do is think about okay well why could they why could they formulate it this way why could John speak of God in John 1 which we'll talk about here in a minute why could he speak the way he does and not have anybody freaking out about it well, the reality is because they already they already knew that Jesus was God. So nobody reading that first century document, in, you know, that was written by John in the later part of the first century, nobody was reading that and thinking this was some radical, brand new thing that no one had exactly. ever heard of, right? So that's that's where we have to start. And the doc, the Old Testament, the Christians, the the reason that people in the first century, why people like Peter and James and John could even get to the point, obviously the the Holy Spirit plays a role in this, but could even get to the point where they thought of Jesus as God, was because this sort of this sort of multiple multiplicity within the singularity, or however you want to phrase it, that was already in the air in first century Judaism. It wasn't new to them to think about God in some of these plural ways, even though they affirmed that there is only one God. Right on. This is not like some case of like weird progressive revelation.
0: It's not as if, you know that old joke, right? That the New Testament is really just the divine commentary in the Old Testament. Right. So I think actually, I would actually go so far as to say is, this was so normative in the Old Testament as to be like, no need for exceptional disclosure right. there, because it was already thought of that this is the way in which God existed. So of course we go to the Genesis, which we, we likely will, but I think all of the Old Testament characters themselves, like knew that God was an optimist prime, in right. I mean, effect, they, they knew what transformers were then. Right. Like in the sense that like, here's like some kind of modal manifestation of God. So like, and we sometimes forget this, like when the scriptures, especially Old Testament speaks of like the word of God coming and a character in the scriptures, seeing that word, right. what we're really speaking of is the word that John's about to disclose to us in first in John here. So like this idea or in John one, so this idea that like the word is a manifestation of Christ or this idea when David speaks of the spirit, he is, of course, talking about separate parts. He's no dummy. It's not like he has no sense right. that God is, is different in these ways and united in essence. So everywhere we see a continuity to begin with, it's so much part of the fabric that nobody feels the need to like exclose it, to, to like essentially like explicitly disclose it in exceptional way. I just combined all those words into one, which is exclosure. You did. So like... It's one of those things where I think we just forget that because like we're New Testament Christians in like the 21st century, and so we're like, well, we must read into what they did not know then, but like we know now. This even goes back to like the theological underpinnings of like Abraham being saved by faith, right? So everywhere you see God showing up, like when we see like the messenger of God, which sometimes is often translated in our. I would say like, this particularly happens in like the NIV, but like, as like the angel of God, most of them, that's like the Moloch, the messenger of God. And oftentimes that is Christ himself. So even then you have, again, these old Testament characters, they're rubbing shoulders with these different persons of God and they're understanding that. So like anybody who would say like, that is overstated, that does not exist in the old Testament, like cut to the Shema. That's like, Hey, what about me?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so let let's get into some of these some of these passages. So we'll start with John 1 because this is this is the classic the classic trinity text. Like this is the classic. one this is the one that everyone knows, everyone goes to. So it's a good place to start. And so just starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So right off the bat in this passage, you know any any first century reader who is looking at this would be seeing some things that we probably are not in our English translations. So in the beginning, right? This is not just some concept of like in in the beginning of this definite period of time. The phrase right. in the beginning in the the mind of a first century Jewish, Reader, even reading in Greek, would have immediately gone back to "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth" of Genesis one one, right? It, it would have called to mind that "In the beginning" is this period of conceptual time. I'm I'm doing time in air quotes. The beginning is this conceptual period of time where nothing had yet been created. So we can't even really talk about it as though it were a time. It's just this this space this. Uh, this sort of eternal moment is what this means, N-R-K, right? It's It's a technical kind of term. It's not just saying like, well, at the very beginning of time, like the very first moment, the word was with God. It's actually going back to prior to that first moment. And so when it says the word was with God, what we're talking about is we're talking about a, uh, a Greek preposition that refers to two people who are face to face. It's actually something like toward God. The word was toward God is the, the word it's, right. it's looking at. And the Greek word is pros. And you might, you know, if you've done any Greek studies, you'd recognize the word prosopon, which means face. So, so prosopon means face to face. So the, the preposition pros, which gets t- uh, translated as with here, is referring to a kind of with where you're face to face right? There's other kinds of with where you're side by side. There's other kinds of with that are are more conceptual. They're not using those spatial categories, but this kind of with this pros has to do with being face to face. So you can't be face to face with something unless there's two persons, right? Two faces that are opposing each other that are face to face. So in this, in this image here that we have in this first, this first chapter of John, we have the word, we have God, and these two are face-to-face with each other. So there's already all of these things embedded about reciprocal relationship, about personality or personhood, right? Personality is a slippery word. We don't want to necessarily use that, but personhood. There's this concept of two two personal entities that are face-to-face with each other. Now, if we just stop there, then we might end up with something that looks a lot like polytheism, right? You could have like Zeus and Poseidon that are face-to-face with each other. But right. then we go on to uh, the next part of that first verse, and it says, and the word was with God, or the word was God, and the word was with God, right? So that's all wrapped up in there. And so we have not only is the word face-to-face with God, but the word is everything that God is, right? I don't. I'm not going to go into all the Greek here, but if you if you read in the commentaries on these, this this construction of the word was God, is is basically it's an identity statement. Everything that it means to be God is what the word is. It, it's like right. an equal sign. So we'll talk about the the kind of like the different terminology on the next episode next week. But the idea is that there's, there's person in nature, right? So there's two persons in the, in view here and there's one nature, right? So even if, even if you talk about Jesse and I's nature, we're both humans, but our natures are not identical to each other. They're not identical. There's no equal sign. There's slight variations between our natures that justify and explain why we're different than each other. But when we're talking about John 1, we have we have these two entities that are directly face-to-face with each other, and they are identical such that they share a single essence or a single nature. There's no way to delineate or distinguish between the essences of these two face-to-face persons because there is so much unity in that that was statement. The word was God. That that Greek construct is as close of an identification as you can get in the Greek language. So that's important because this this already sets up everything we need to know about the Trinity, right? Well, obviously, like we have to pull in the Holy Spirit, and there's other passages we have to use to do that. But all of the basic metaphysical and th- this is why this is important is because right now in uh, in sort of Reformedish Baptist circles. Think think like James White, Jeffrey Johnson, Wayne Grudem kinds of circles. It's weird that James White and Wayne Grudem are now in the same circle on this, but – there's this denial of uh, classical theism. There's this denial of what they're calling like Thomas's metaphysics. The reality is that the Bible articulates everything we need to get to, quote, Thomas's metaphysic in terms of divine simplicity and things like that we've talked about before. It's all right here in John 1. You can't actually interpret John 1 in a consistent way and not come across, come away articulating the, the sort of metaphysical reality of God that people like Athanasius and Augustine and Aquinas all articulate. So that's why we're spending time doing this, because even though that's true, the Bible is still the place we have to start. The Bible is the place we have to go. But it's not as though you walk away from the Bible with something totally different or totally totally un unassociated with what, what classical theism teaches. Right. And here we find in these opening verses of
0: John, which are generally called the prologue, they're really glorious, yeah. aren't they? I mean, there's like just so much beautiful language here. And in part, what John is doing is maybe not even in part, the whole of it is he's has this included in there because his overriding goal throughout the gospel is really making a case for the identity of Christ. Of course, John's going to say later on that he wrote what he did, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have a life in his name. So we could summarize all this by saying John is not interested in being this kind of detached observer and chronicler of the life of Jesus. And because of that, he's trying to persuade his readers of the truth of Christ so that they may become his disciples. And before he enters into an overview of Jesus' life and ministry, which is basically where like Matthew and Luke start, he composes this quick look at Jesus' ultimate credentials. And his these credentials are a summation of everything that's in the Old Testament. Like I like what you said. He's not saying anything new here. He's basically just saying, let's just get this straight. I'm just going to lay it out there for you so that we're all starting. We're all singing from the same page on the sheet music here that Jesus is God. Full stop. And so this just expresses, again, for the readers, something they would have been drawn into this. Of course, of course, nothing preoccupied most of like the first century church than understanding who Jesus was. And here John wants to be very explicit in identifying that, but he's not drawing any new material. Like this is not novel. It's just like second verse of the same song. And so he's just saying like let's just get this out there so that we all know that like this is the Messiah the one spoken of the one who's spoken of the word the one that comes and manifests in the Old Testament this is he it is Jesus and he was the word and he's always been together with God the Father.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so you know it makes sense after you've talked about John 1 to then move on to Genesis 1 because you can't really yes. you can't really separate these two passages. It, it, you know there it's it's interesting because Matthew and John both call you back to the to the to the Torah in their own way, right? Matthew is kind of this reiteration of sort of the overall story of uh, the Exodus, right, complete with like the giving of the the new law and like the mountaintop experience and, and the, sort of the entry into the, the promised land. John is really doing something different, though. He's bringing you back to that before creation moment to right really on. explain the metaphysical realities that are going on. But there's no one in his readership that would not have, and, and if you look at the Greek translation of, of Genesis, the, the wording is exactly the same, and RK is identical in the two passages. So you really have to go back to Genesis 1, and we won't read through the whole thing, but um, it, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, Uh, Genesis 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, right? So, so we have every, we actually have all of the same basic elements that we had in Genesis or in John 1, right? We've got, we've got God, we've got speech, or we've got divine word. We have, we have discussions about light, Right. So there's there's that same affinity about light and how light functions in, in different right. ways. And so right here, even getting away from some of the obvious stuff about about, you know, like Elohim's a plural verb and all of that stuff, we have all three persons of the Trinity right in the first three verses of the text. Right, Right You might might not get there 100% if you weren't already reading in light of John 1, because God said does not seem to imply a second person. But now when you go to what John has said, and now we have the Word who is a, a, a full person, the Word is a person distinct from God, in like parentheses, God the Father. When we talk about God speaking, what we're talking about is this anthropomorphized, analogical understanding of how God created. It wasn't... It wasn't by getting his hands dirty, right? He didn't get down in the clay and he didn't form stuff with his hands because he doesn't have hands. We get a little bit of something like that in Genesis 2. But right here, what we have is this fiat declaration that it, God is creating by the power of God. There's no like intermediary creation. We talked about this when we did the the Providence uh, series about this kind of this creative way of God doing things where it's not, it's not by means of secondary causation. It's simply God acting by God, right? Well, what we have here is the Father is working through the Son, and then the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep is the Spirit finalizing and confirming that. So we even here we have this picture of inseparable operations, which we're we're going. I keep on saying right. we're going to talk about it. This is very much an introductory kind of a, an episode. We have this idea of inseparable operations where no one person of the Trinity is ever acting apart from the other persons of the Trinity. It's I I'm I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit closer to what what Dr. Vidu would call a soft uh, inseparability than he is. I would say like the persons of the Trinity are each engaged in a singular work, but they're each engaged in their singular work as their distinct persons. So the father is doing the one work as father and the son is doing the one work as son or word as word. All of that aside, we'll get into that probably in a couple weeks here, but all three persons of the Trinity are represented in this text. And then just to sort of like put a little pin in it or kind of put some icing on top of it, what this does for you is when you get to Genesis 127 or 126, rather, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over blah, 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 all this other stuff. What this does for us, if we understand the Trinity at play here, on full display, right? There's, this isn't obscured. There's no shadows. It's 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 right there in the open. We couldn't see it quite yet, but it, there's not anything really hidden about it. This concept of God saying, let us make man in our image, has caused no small amount of confusion in the church, right? Is this right. the royal we, which doesn't exist in Hebrew? There's no other. This is one of a handful of places where it could possibly be. Is it some sort of like circumlocution? Is this a leftover vestige of when there was, when the Israelites were polytheistic, right? Take a more liberal approach. You take kind of like the Michael Heiser approach. We're like, well, these are divine entities that aren't God, but they're, they're also divine. Well, we don't have to do any of that, right? It's the father saying to his son and to his spirit, let us make man in our own image, right? This, in my mind, this is actually like the pactum salutis. This is where God right. says- I will have a people to be my very own and the son and the spirit joyfully agree in the singularity of their will that yes, indeed we will have a people who are in our own image, right? That's, that's what's going on here. The three persons of the Trinity are acting in concert to, to make this declaration that they will make God or make man and man will be in their image. So even, even just in Genesis one, we have all sorts of really clear references to something that you can't really properly understand, Unless you have a doctrine of the Trinity, it's I, I, it might be apocryphal. But when I was doing some research on the Trinity, I came across this old uh, this old book. I don't remember what it's called, but they were talking about the rabbinical tradition, and somewhere in the rabbinical tri- tradition, there was this made up dialogue between Moses and God as he was writing this, where, where he was like, God, if we do this, they're gonna they're gonna think that you that's polytheism, and God God basically said like, don't worry. I said what I said. And so the rabbis didn't quite know what to do with it, but they could see in this that there, it wasn't just as simple as like the plurality of majesty or the plurality of intensity. There was something more going on in this text that they quite couldn't quite put their fingers on, but they knew was there. And that's why this text is important for us. That's
0: right on. It's almost more confusing if you try to read this any other way, because what you find is that it's so explicit with respect to that there's different parties evolved here. That you'd have to say like so if you just treated this as like a it's kind of this like normative plain document of just storytelling you'd say it seems like there's more than one character in this right i mean to be very crashed about it it seems like there's more than one person represented right. in this unfolding of events that's taking place and in some ways that's the point Uh, you know to put in like a plug for something totally different i'm going to sneak into affirmation if people are actually curious unpacking what you said about that opening line in the beginning god I would recommend going back and listening to the very first episode of a podcast called 40 Minutes in the Old Testament. That's with Chad Bird, our resident Lutheran. And he, who is an expert in that language, unpacks how so even in that, that simple phrase in that verse is embedded in the language, because my Hebrew is very weak, this sensibility that Christ is anticipated. That even right. there you're finding the plurality of the persons that are still united in one essence. So what we're saying, I think, at the end of the day here in the final analysis is that... God is revealing. He's done it in in John 1. He's doing it at the very beginning when he's articulating through Moses what happened in creation. He's revealing himself as the triune God. And that revelation comes with a great mystery. I mean, we're not saying that we comprehend it. It's beyond comprehension for all creatures. But his divine essence is consisting in these three persons and not in such a way that each of these three persons would possess one part of the divine essence so that by combining them, they would form like the full Godhead. That's like some weird like, what was that thing? Was it Captain Planet? Yes. The
1: the rings? By our power combined, yeah.
0: Yes, it's not that nonsense. And this goes back to what we already talked about with Theology Proper. And this is because God is a simple being. Like see how we can't violate one part of what we already talked about to bring in like another part. So he's far from bringing this combination apart. So God consists not of three persons, but in three persons, the full being of God is in the father and the same full being is in the son and in the Holy spirit. The father is God. The son is God, no less than the father and the Holy spirit is God of the same eternity, glory and majesty as the father and the son. And I think, You find that clearly presented and lovingly articulated, so eloquently placed in each of these passages. And it's beautiful that they basically bookend what we would call, like, you know, the Torah, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. We find beautiful continuity. Like, just the fact that 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 exists, written by human authors. I think conveys to us that there is the clear influence of something that is superintending, that is divine and transcendent. That force of course is God himself. And so we have this just beauty represented in something that for all intents and purposes, like you can't get two people together, to tell the same story for the same event that actually happened that they both saw. And yet here we see like this wonderful continuity of who God is expressed in both of these passages that we have just talked about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Before I, I pick another passage, uh, I, if you don't, it's okay because I gave you like less than a minute of time to to prep for this episode. Do you have yeah. any passages that maybe are a little bit off the beaten track that would go you would go to off the top of your head with no prep time uh, whatsoever? Oh man,
0: here's the thing: most of those passages I think for me are like Old Testament passages, yeah. like that where what's being clearly implied. Like so, not even like the the maybe this is not off the beaten path. Like when Paul talks about you know, the Israelites wandering in the desert, and they're right. like that rock, that rock, rock was Christ. And you're kind of yeah. like, wait, where did that come from? Like that just came out of nowhere. Like there's that stuff. But I think like, especially when we see the spirit coming on people. So the difference between like David, Saul and uh, then, like the contradistinction distinction with like John, I go back to those passages and say, like, clearly we see like the work of God. Or again, for me, it's all the places where you see like the Malak Yahweh, right. the messenger of God coming forward. So whether that's Gideon or Abraham, we see clearly that when when Jesus says like to the Pharisees, like, listen, Abraham was looking forward to my day. Like before Abraham was, I am, and they're like, what are you talking about? I think Abraham would would cut to like, yeah, like that. I don't understand. Why are you guys confused? Like I understood like the smoking pot, the word passing before me, like here we have God represented in his Trinitarian form. And again, it was just like so normal. So like, it wasn't even cool. It was so standard. It was like, this is the thing. This is how we understand God. So that's all those passages and none in particular that I just gave you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. You bring up that, the, the rock was Christ passage that, that, you know, Paul reflecting on it. I think sometimes we look at that and we think like, oh yeah, yeah. Like Paul's just saying like Jesus was with you in the, like God was with you in the desert. So like the rock, the rock that gave you water, that was Christ. I don't remember the specifics. I'll have to try to look it up and make sure I say it on the next episode. There's a wonderful sermon. I think it's by, I think it's by Edward or Edmund Clowney talking about what it means for the rock to be Christ. So, so if you think about the passages with the different rocks, right? There's the first passage where the Israelites come to Moses. I don't remember the passage off of my head. I'm sure it's in Numbers, but I don't know where. The Israelites come to Moses and they're like, what the heck, Moses? We don't have any food. We don't have any water. We're all going to die, right? You've led us into the desert to die. Moses basically goes to God and says, yeah, you know what? We don't have any water or any food, so what are we going to do? And then God says, strike the rock, I will go. Right. I think he says, "I will go before you strike the rock," right. and he does. Well, then there's this weird second instance where God says, "Speak to the rock, and the rock will yes. give you water." And Moses right. strikes the rock. What's really interesting, and this is this, I'm, I'm getting to a point that has to do with the Trinity here in a second. Moses, when he strikes the rock, a lot of times people reflecting on that and saying, "Well, why did why was it that that sin?" That caused him not to go into the holy land, right? Because God says, Because you struck the rock, what he says is, because you did not honor my name as holy, you will not enter the promised land. So this this sermon goes into this long detailed explanation. It's well supported. I don't remember all the details off the top of my head. But basically, the 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 Israelites in the first instance, they come forward, they complain to Moses, accusing God of something, right? And then he says, I will go before you, strike the rock. Well, what it is, is God is is figuratively standing on that rock and receives the judgment of the false accusation in the striking of the rock. Right. So so it really is Christ was the rock. It's Christ. Christ was yeah. strict, struck in, in the desert on the basis of a false accusation. So now when the second time comes around and the Israelites bring a second false accusation that God is not taking care of them... God was telling Moses, I will not take the false accusation again, simply speak to the rock and prove that I am taking care of them. But Moses strikes God again, figuratively. He strikes the rock and executes judgment on Christ in that act that Christ now says, because you didn't honor my name as holy. You will not enter the Promised Land. So instead of it being some some weird thing where we say, like, "Well, Moses had a, had a rage problem." That's what I usually hear people say. Like Moses got angry, and so he 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 didn't get to go into the Promised Land because he couldn't control his temper and he struck the rock. No, no, no. What it is is that Moses was not trusting God, and so he right. executed the same judgment he did that the Israelites were asking for, and that is what caused. Moses, not to go into the promised land. So I'll look up the sermon because he develops it. He pulls in ancient Near Eastern texts a lot better than I obviously just did. But it's really interesting because now Paul's saying that rock was Christ. The the Israelites knew they were accusing God of something. And so the, the act of striking the rock would have spoken to them in that, yes, God was being stricken by this act, this sort of like play acted judgment upon God, that was that was what they would have understood at the time. They wouldn't have just thought like, oh, Moses must just be breaking open rocks and finding water. They would have right. seen it as God being judged for the lack of provision and then providing as a result of it. Right. And then the second time when they did it, all of a sudden it's a different thing. What it should have said to them if he had spoken it was God is faithful. Now God is faithful to his promise. He did in the past, he took that self maledictory oath and he took that judgment right. now right. he's exactly. faithful to the promise so even now when when paul says christ was in christ was the rock he's appealing to this idea so we we should look at the new testament to understand how the old testament is interpreted so it's funny cuz you mentioned abraham and i was going to i was going to bring this up i'm going to read this out of the new american standard
0: Ooh, uh, instead fancy. of the ESV
1: I don't often go to anything besides the ESV Although I did place my order for the LSB study Bible Or LSB Bible the other day Oh yeah So here's, here's what uh, Genesis 15.1 says in, um, in the NASB After these things The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Saying Do not fear Abram I am a shield to you Your reward shall be very great Now I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version And let's see if you can tell me what's different This is like, we need some Jeopardy music. Oh, man. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I should have listened better to the NASB. (laughs) So in the NASB, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. In the ESV, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram. Right, so the right. subtle difference there yeah. is that in the, the NASB is much closer to what the Hebrew says. And this is really, really important. And just as a side note, I brought this thing up with Chad Bird when we were at the beach and he was like, yeah, absolutely. So then you know I'm right. <laughs> in the NASB, the word of the Lord is a distinct entity. It's a distinct, yes. it's a distinct character in the pericope. The word of the Lord comes in a vision and says... In the yes. way that ESV translates it, they take that word saying and they basically turn it into a quotation mark. Exactly. So they, this is the word of the Lord that the Lord spoke. In the uh, NASB, which closer reflects the Hebrew, the word of the Lord is the one speaking. So this is really, really important because all across the Old Testament, we see this same phenomenon. This is just one case. You see it a lot in the prophets. You see it in some in Judges. Right. You see it some in Joshua. There's this... There's this dynamic that happens in the Old Testament where some something, the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, like you were talking about, th- this figure that's representing God comes and then is spoken of as though it is God himself. So mm-hmm. the angel of the Lord comes to Moses, and then it says, and the Lord said, but it's clearly the angel of the Lord that's saying. So is it the angel right. of the Lord that's speaking, or is it the Lord that's speaking? The ESV is trying to smooth out this translation by basically making this sort of like intermediate part where the angel is speaking, but he's it's like he's like just a messenger. There's a different dynamic going on in the Hebrew that's really important. So we have now the angel of the Lord or the word of the Lord is coming to Abraham and is speaking. And if you actually, if you uh, translate this, I, the only reason this comes to mind is I did my senior he, or my senior theology paper in college on this. The word of the Lord, if you translate this very, very, very woodenly, it's the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision to say, It's it's right. an infinitive, it's to say. So not only is it this other figure in the story or figure in the account that's coming and doing something, there's an intentionality behind it. The word of the Lord has its own intentionality, its own its own motivation in the situation. It's sent by the Lord, but it also comes in order to say, in order to speak. So it, it's it's clearly not just some like circumlocution or some sort of talking around a point. It's not, it's not trying to depersonalize sometimes people think it's trying to build distance between God and Abram. Like there's got to be this conceptual distance because God is so high and Abram is so low. That's not at all what's going on in the text. It's really clear so much so that some, uh, some of the Aramaic translations uh, actually use the word of the Lord in places where it's just God in the the account. Right. So there's places right. where it just says the Lord came to somebody and said, and, and in uh, the Aramaic translations, it actually says the word of the Lord. So they recognize this feature that anytime God comes and speaks in a revelatory fashion, it's actually the word of the Lord who's doing it. So we, we have to look at these texts the way that the New Testament authors did, right? Whether it's it's Paul looking at these these sort of strange accounts of Moses striking the rock and saying that's Jesus right there. That's Jesus right, right. there. Or whether right. it's it's Jesus or Peter going to Psalm 110 and going what now Pharisees how is it possible that the Lord of the Lord that the Lord said to my Lord how is it that David's Lord is also his son right? Or whether it's Genesis 1 and John's own kind of reflection on Genesis 1 that we see in John 1, or Hebrews 1 is another good one, Colossians 1, right? Uh, and then there's one other one that I want to point out because this is one of those um, smack you in the face when you see it, but you never saw it before kind of ones. So Psalm 33 verse 1, and I'm going to read through uh, verse, let's say verse 7. Says, shout for the joy uh, shout for joy in the Lord O you righteous praise befits the upright give thanks to the Lord with the lyre make melody to him with the harp of ten strings sing to him a new song play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts right pretty standard fair uh, at that part then we get to verse four for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness all right well whose work are we talking about are we talking about the Lord or are we talking about the word of the Lord right. could be either it could be could be kind of you know ambiguous in this. Verse five, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadf- of the steadfast love of the Lord. And then we get to verse six and it kind of all clicks into place by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, right? Genesis one, three, and by the breath or spirit of his mouth, all their hosts. Genesis right. one, one through three, right there, the word of the right. Lord, the spirit of the Lord hovering. And then it says, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. We're talking right about Genesis. We're talking about the creation he puts them in deep storehouses, right? So we have this this sort of like dynamic interplay right here in Psalm 33. This is the praise hymnal of the Old Testament. This is the worship of the Israelite people, right? right? We're not talking about some weird, obscure text. This is a text that they would have sung every year, at least once during some part of the year. And right here, we have the Trinity on full display. And that's why John can say, through him, all things were made and nothing was made That Nothing has been made that was made apart from him, right? I probably butchered that, but but he can say that because it's by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made, right? John, I mean, Colossians 1 is the same thing. Hebrews 1 is the same thing. The word of the Lord is the immediate agent of creation. And then the the way that the Bible describes this, taking into account inseparable operations, we'll get into that in a future episode, God the Father operates through the Son— and by the spirit to execute every external act. So it's by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth or the spirit of his mouth and all their hosts. Like we have to read the old Testament understanding that the, the prophetic witness of the old Testament prophets or David in this case, who was a prophet of his own, in sort of his own kind, the prophetic witness of the old Testament was not a bunch of people that were totally wandering around without a clue of what they were saying. Right. Right. David was not confused when he wrote this and it's not, David did not enter some kind of trance and wake up and be like, I don't understand what this scroll means. He wrote this according to human agency as the Holy spirit carried him along. Right. We're not dictation theory people on this show. This was not something David did not understand. He maybe didn't understand the fullness of it. He maybe didn't understand the, the completeness of it. Although I actually think that the prophets probably knew a lot more than we give them credit for, especially Moses Agreed. But David could write this because he understood that in Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 126 and then even in Genesis 4 you know when when um, yeah anyways he understood this plurality principle within the singular one God. He understood that when the Bible says Hear Israel the Lord your God is one God. That it wasn't a one of of utter numeric singularity. It was a one of unity. There's one right. unified God. There's one one being of God who is God. That's what that's what the Shema means. So we have to. I know this is complicated, and I know it's hard, and it takes a lot of it takes a lot of work. But you have to read and read and reread and reread because if you don't. If you don't pickle yourself in the Bible, like we've said before, you miss some of these connections. I remember talking to you one time about, I think it's in Zechariah, where um, where there's like this guy, and, it, and he's like, there was a guy, and... The guy looked oh, yeah. like the guy looked like bronze from from the waist <laughs> right. up, yeah. And, and right. I, you know, and like Zechariah is confused about this, and then like right. he sends these judging angels. He sees a vision of these judging angels going into Jerusalem. But before the judging angels go into Jerusalem, this person who looks like a man but is bronze from the waist up goes into Jerusalem and he marks off all those who would be saved. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Right on. Zechariah exactly. knew that that was the Messiah. Exactly. Uh, maybe it isn't Zechariah. I don't know who it is. But those things were not a surprise to the prophets when they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They weren't a surprise. You don't see people, you don't read about people in the Old Testament or even historical accounts of going, oh, man, that's heresy right there. There's not some guy (laughs) made of bronze that's also God. Like, you you just don't see that in the historical account. So we act sometimes as though the Bible... The old testament maybe has some like shadowy figures, some shadowy pointing to right. the Trinity that when we flip on the light switch of the New Testament, we can see clearly, yeah, there's a little bit of that. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe David didn't understand the fullness of what he was saying. We don't understand the fullness of it now. We never will. But he also was not walking around the dark going. I don't know what this breath and word thing is all about, right. but I guess it's exactly. good to sing. That just isn't reality.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's well said. I mean, that's probably a good place for us to kind of land on this conversation because, in some parts, we have this weird cultural dominance with the way that we understand things. So our conception about things like the idea of a word is an idea, like, cause we're in the printed error. So like a word to us means some kind of ideological expression of something. Whereas what's happening here, like you said, when the scriptures refer to the word, they're talking about a person of God yeah. and he shows up, which is why when Jesus can say things like, no, no, Abraham saw forward to my day. He's not just saying, well, Abraham had this like, strange ephemeral conception that God was going to bring about some kind of salvation. He's like, no, no, no. I was there right. with him. Yeah. And so because of that, it's not that Abraham is like unclear. He's like, well, there's like a murkiness to this. I'm not entirely sure how this whole like thing works, but I can kind of get down with it. I'm just going to trust it all works out in the end. He's he's trusting in his savior whom he has seen because God has manifest himself in the actual presence of Abraham by being the word. So it's interesting whether you go to John's revelation or you go to the old Testament, anytime where you see like the word showing up and people are seeing it, that's not just like, they're somehow getting like this dictation in their minds. If they're seeing it, they're seeing one of the persons of God and that's Christ. Yep. So it's like everywhere it's littered. It's ubiquitous. It's all throughout the old Testament, in the scripture. So by the time we get to John writing, he's basically saying like, Hey guys, you know this already, right? Like, let me just, I just got to say this so that like, you know, we all know, right? Like we're like, I, I, it's like a weird, I feel like it's like an awkward British drama where he's just right. like, so you, you know, like this, right? Like we are on a great, right. We're on agreement. Right. And they're all just like, yes. This is the word made flesh was the same one that shows up in all the old Testament that has been doing the work of God from the beginning of time, even before there was time. So by the time that they write it down, they're just like, yeah, what is this like second, third verse, same song. We're down with it. Let's go. And we need to kind of get into that place to realize that we're not seeing something new here, but it's like just the full counsel of God being manifested over and over and over again. And it's beautiful, right? Like, like you said, to see that there's a judgment necessary. So this is wild, We're going to start like hour six of this podcast right now. So like, this is wild though, that like, when we go to the idea that the rock is Christ now, like, and you notice, like you said, Paul doesn't say like, it's like the, it's like the rock was Christ, or it could be akin to, or it's similar. It's like, or it's like a metaphor. The rock was Christ. So he's talking about in that moment, as you said, there was by necessity, there was the need for judgment because there was disobedience. There was lack of understanding. Like here we have essentially Christ being the intercessor already for the Israelites in this profound way. And all Paul is doing is saying, like, I just want to point out that's what's going on. But the fact that he points it out doesn't mean that there was any less of it going on. Does that make sense? Right. Like all he's doing is drawing our attention to the fact that it was present, it happened then. So we can't let's not get it twisted and say, like, well, because he points it out, it didn't exist before the time that Paul pointed it out. What he's actually saying is, no, this was how it was all along. And most everybody understood this, and how great of God to point it out for all of posterity's sake, so that for people like you and me who have a, are totally disconnected from that book, that time, that culture, that place, that language, that we could actually understand. Like it takes Paul to say to me, like, Jesse, listen, that rock was Christ. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, that rock was Christ. Yeah.
1: yeah, It's not, he, you know, I, I think we read that sometimes. Paul wasn't using that historical event as a sermon illustration, right? Right. Was, he, was, he was saying, no, no, Jesus was that rock. Like that, that rock, and he actually sort of gives this impression that like the rock is following them around in the desert. Yes. Like there, yeah. there's this weird, there's this sort of weird quality of the way Paul explains it. And, and we can take some of that to understand yeah, the rock, the rock wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't become incarnate as a rock for a time. Like that's not what he's saying. What he, he's saying is that the spiritual reality of Jesus is present in that event, that, that Jesus was actually there. There's something real yes. that happened to God. And I know that's even weird to say, but there's something real that happened to God in that instance, that Jesus was that rock. And and it's, yeah, we could, I mean, we're going to be on, on like, we're just going to have to do the same episode next week. I'm all, like, I'm all jacked up right now. I'm all, like, I got, like, jazz hands going, I don't even know what's happening right now. With my well, God, I could leap over a
0: wall. This this is what uh, God does to us. Like, the the fact that we can see his presence, his personhood, this this amazing unified essence represented in different persons throughout the Old Testament. When we see that there is this continuity, I can't help but get excited. So I'm, I'm with you. Like it's great to be passionate about God and how, how amazing, right? That like at the end of the day, God would disclose himself to us and that he would explain in some small part who he is and what he's been doing in all of his glorious work across all of time. And even before that. So like we're yeah. kind of peering into something that is so amazing and so beyond me that I think it would be weird. Like we should say to each other, like, you got to check your pulse if you don't get stoked about this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One, one more little one. Cause I just did this little little exercise with myself <laughs> where I just scrolled through the Bible until I found a verse and I read it. And this has been my consistent experience over the last several years of really being dedicated to reading scripture every day. Right? No law. No, no, like I'm not, I'm not putting in a new law. If you're not able to get to the Bible every day, that's totally fine there's no thou shalt read the Bible every day, right? There's a lot of grace here, but I was just scrolling through. And this is a practice that I've developed, right? I get to Amos chapter eight and verse 11. uh, And it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but the hearing of the words of the Lord, right? The words of the Lord. So that's plural. So we can say like, okay, that's probably not talking about Jesus. But then look at this. Verse 12, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word singular mm. of the Lord, but they shall right not on. find it. Well, one of the things you should know is Hebrew doesn't have the same kind of gender system, right? There's no, it, it doesn't work quite the same way. So either something is masculine or feminine. I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't remember Hebrew. I don't think there's a neuter a neuter version of a word. So, so this is a masculine word. Word of the Lord, right? So they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. We think of that like, are they looking for a Bible? Like they know right, where it exactly. is. They know where to get the word the word of the Lord. They can go to the temple. They can go to, right. you know, they can do these things. It's, it's there for them. They understand it. They shall not find it. Do they forget where Jerusalem is? Did they forget where the synagogue is, where the pro- you know, prophets and the priests are? No, they're not looking for a physical Bible. They're looking for the word of the Lord. They're Amen. looking for the one who's appeared in the past to them, who has, re- who has represented God to them in bodily form, right? In these sort of pre-incarnate appearings of the word. So even just something as simple as that, when you make it a practice to spend your, your time pickling yourself, marinating in the word of God, these Love kinds it. of I'm gonna, – I'm going to shoot myself for saying this. <laughs> I was listening to The Bible Project the other day, which I do not advocate because they're all sorts of crazy – But they were talking about how the Bible is what they're calling meditation literature. It's designed, and and you can see it, it's designed to be read and reread and reread and reread. You can't get everything on the first take. You can't understand everything the first time through. Just because you read and you run into something in the New Testament, and all of a sudden you go, wait a second, I think I remember something about that. And then you read through the next time and you go, oh man, I, the, that dude with the bronze the bronze torso that's Jesus right like you right. do this stuff so we're on like you're oh, at like 118 minutes I think right now so <laughs> I'm gonna just bring us to a close Jesse this has been a fun conversation um, I would love it you know we we haven't done a question cast in a while I would yeah. like to hear some voices of people who found stuff like this in the Old Testament so send us idea. send us your best Old Testament that was Jesus kind of moments, right? Send us that stuff. Uh, we'll put this, we'll put some together. You know, we like to hear other people's voice on the show. Maybe we'll just put a clip, like a clip show of people telling us their favorite. I found Jesus in the old Testament stories, but we'd love to hear those things because it's it's all over the place. Things you wouldn't places. Right. You wouldn't expect it to be. Um, he's in the judgment passages in the prophets. He's in the grace passages in the prophets. He's in the historical account. He's in the wisdom. It, he's everywhere. He's everywhere in the Bible. And we shouldn't be surprised because that's what he told us. He would be everywhere in the old Testament. So right. I'm glad we did this. I'm glad this is where we started. I'm glad we didn't skip over the Bible part. Like sometimes, people are want to do with um with trinity stuff and we got we got at least three or four trinity episodes that i'm i'm cooking up and that's my head. right jesse won't know about them until we start recording so <laughs> neither will you but jesse until next time honor everyone love the brotherhood